Hello and welcome to The 100 Podcast. Zen and Charlie here with you. Hope you're well. We've been away for a few weeks, quite a while actually, probably more like a few months to be honest with you for, for a number of reasons. Um, but we're back to do a New Year's mailbag because we're really excited about The 100 in 2023. Lots to get to, including your questions and a few of the news things that have popped up uh, from The 100 over the last couple of months. But first of all, Charlie Peters, how are you? Do you know what I mean? I'm really good, thank you. I've missed doing these. It's been a bit of a while. Life gets in the way sometimes, but I've missed it. I'm back. I'm feeling good about cricket again, and I'm looking forward to talking about this stupid tournament, the 100. And what I think about most when I get back from a long day's work over the last couple of months has been how so I haven't been able to pop onto a podcast and talk about the Welsh fire with you. So that's going to be a, a true pleasure. Lots to get onto, including looking ahead to the retention, the new women's draft system, your mailbag questions. But first, a couple of big bits of news. The new coaches coming into the 100 this year. First of all, Stephen Fleming has been appointed Southern Brave head coach. Now Mahela J. Wardner has his lifelong contract as, what is it, strategic global director of MI um, across the world. He's taken a little bit of a break, uh, of course, until Mumbai Indians buy the Southern Brave, presumably, uh, in the future. So he's gone and they've brought in former Trent Rockets coach Stephen Fleming. Um, to come in as head coach. What do you make of it? Because, I mean, this is a man with just plentiful success in T-Swinning cricket. Yeah, I think it's a great appointment. I don't think anybody could really have many issues with this one. Stephen Fleming, his reputation in the short form speaks for itself. He's built that dynasty at CSK over the years. And mentally now, he's looking quite old and creaky. But, you know, you've got to look at the results. I think what he has built a reputation for is his ability to squeeze every ounce of talent within a particular squad and get it out of them. You look at that CSK team, and for many years now, people have been saying, this team is old, this team is probably past it, this team probably needs to be broken up. And every year, they don't really do that. They keep that core, and somehow they still kind of do all right at worst. It's, it's hard to know how that really happens, but Stephen Fleming is probably a very big part of that. He is a very highly regarded coach, and I think it's a good pick. He will probably do pretty well. I like that CSK have probably been a point now where they probably should have done a rebuild for the like the last six or seven years, but they just keep putting it off and putting it off and putting it off for as long as possible. They go into the meeting pre-season, they're thinking, uh, hey, do you fancy one more year? Like, yes, bring it in. Let's get Dubai in. They'll do, let's do that. Let's spend 16 crore on Ben Stokes and look ahead to the future. I mean, it's uh, <laughs> remarkable, I think. Um, and also, just, just to say, Stephen Fleming's been involved with the CSK. If you, if you take out the two years they were away from, away from the competition, he was picked as a player in 2008. And then I believe became coach in 2009. He's he's been there forever, and to again to maintain that amount of you know, success is remarkable. I mean, not perfect. His time with the Melbourne Stars and the Big Bash was pretty average, but I think when you look at what he did with CSK, and then you also look at the squad the, the Southern Brave have. I mean, you've got everything. I mean, you've got Archer Mills, John Garton, great seam attack there. James Vince, the captain. That's you know 
quality play. You have Linton and Ahmed already locked in as your spinners. Uh, the bowling's great, and he can work with that. The batting needs a bit of tuning, and I think that that will be their kind of focus for the the off season, the retentions, etc. Is how to build a better middle order and batting unit around that good bowling side. But but if you're looking for a you know, a successful coach, lots of experience. I, I think he's just 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 a good choice, and I think it's great that he's in the hundred. Frankly, hundred percent. It was a shame he couldn't really do anything with that Trent Rocket side he drafted back in twenty nineteen. I was curious to see what he'd done with it. Obviously, Andy Flower came in and did a very good job. Of course, he's the reigning champion now with the Trent Rockets men. But mm. Stephen Fleming clearly really high, really top quality coach. It's really good that the competition is attracting that kind of talent and that kind of caliber, and it's. It's a no-brainer, frankly. So I'm sure he'll be a really good fit for that team. And I'm sure they'll improve on last season's fairly underwhelming show. I think it's important to mention that there are lots of good coaches in the 100. Like, I think there are some yeah, not-so-great ones. But if you look at the calibre of coaches you've got in and around all of this, Stephen Fleming now, obviously Jay Wardner was here in, until recently. Andy Flowers done a great job with the Rockets. Trevor Bayliss is a, a remarkable coach, and, and will go, I think, has always been... Un- Even with the success he had the England team, I, I think he's underrated with the, the, the job he's done across cricket. I had a great year with London Spirit last year. Uh, and I, I just think there are lots of uh, Tom Moody, Oval Invincibles as well. And you can go around and look at Simon Katic as well, actually. Very good record. All of these great coaches coming to the 100 is is good. And I, I think that is a positive step forward. And, and the fact that the tournament can pull in these coaches is great. The test of that is whether the least desirable vacancy in the entire tournament will be filled with a big name, a.k.a. the Welsh Fire. Obviously, they let Gary Kirsten go. Lots of respect for Gary Kirsten. Um, it just felt like it it had run its course, just needed a refresh. I think with all respect to Gary Kirsten, who has been a very successful coach over the years, you cannot justify keeping someone with that record for another season. These contracts in 100 are renewed on an annual basis, year by year. And if your last year of employment has been that poor, it's pretty hard to say, all right, Gary, let's have another one, mate. You can't really say that. So I think we all knew, including Gary, at the end of last season, that he was gone. Pretty much as soon as he finished that last game, he knew he was going. The board knew he was going. And I think all around, it was an inevitable decision and probably the right one. There's something not right within the Welsh fire. And I think they need a refresh. I don't exactly know what path they're going to choose. Frankly, I don't know if they know what path they're going to choose just yet. <laughs> but um, I think it's clear that a new direction was needed. Uh, honestly, Gary, King, my friend, my boy, get out of there. <laughs> get out of there, my friend. Just, you know what? You don't need that stress in your life in 2023. New year, new you. Go chill out on the beach. Don't spend the summer with the Welsh fire. There's no need for it. Um, so, yeah, a good coach just didn't work out. And I think the, the refresh was inevitable. The issue now is, for all of his faults with the Welsh fire, Gary Kirsten's a good coach. So now you've got to go get a good coach who, who fits the organisation, who's going to work with the players. So who do they go for? David Saker is apparently the front runner at this point. That's what's coming out about this. Obviously, head coach of the Renegades still. The Renegades have been good. The Renegades have been really bad. So, so there's some success there. Good fast bowling coach. I think in, in general, people would say, yeah, I think a good, very good bowling coach. Whether the head coach 
nature of it is his thing, I suppose, is the issue. What would you make of David Saker before we get to our preferred candidates? I like David Saker. I think he's got a very good track record as a bowling coach over the years. He's had a lot of success in that role. I just think if he were to get the job, he would probably be among the weaker handful of coaches in the competition. And that's no disrespect to him. It's just because there's a lot of really high-quality coaches in the 100. Stephen Fleming has just joined, replacing Mahela Jai Wardner. You have Trevor Bayliss at the London Spirit. That's nothing against Saker, but he's not at that level as a head coach that I have seen. And so he might be very well. But as of yet, his record doesn't suggest that he's at the level as the best coaches in the league. So I agree with that. I, I And I also think that the Welsh Fire in such a situation where I think at the very least you need to try and make a statement. Like I wouldn't be coming into this with, and again, all due respect to David Saker, if he gets the job, I'm interested to see what he does with it. But I wouldn't walk in with David Saker as my number one. I'd walk in and try and get one of the big dogs in. And I think that, that, again, the name that we're going to bring up every single cycle in the 100, and whether he'll do it or not, uh, we wanted him as the, the England coach at one point, Ricky Ponting, I think is the play. It's just the coach that you should just line up and say, we're going after someone like Ricky. And then if you get David Saker, and he interviews really well, and you love what he does after going through that process, great. I think you need to start by going after a big name and trying to press the reset button in a very... A, a, a big way, an expansive way, an ambitious way. And look, I, I'm not sure Ricky Ponting is going to want to spend his summer in Cardiff, given what's happened the last couple of years. But surely he's the coach you at least look to first, just to have some sort of, you know, high-flying process here. Uh, I totally agree. And look, it, it's very possible that they have approached Ponting and he said, no, thanks. Uh, understandably so. And they said, yeah, understandably, have a good day and moved on. Um, but as far as we've heard, that hasn't necessarily happened. So we can only go by what we know, or in this case, what we don't know. Um, I, I think he might as well have a stab at the best person, um, even if you don't think they'll, they'll necessarily want to take it. I feel like, as you kind of said, Ed, this is as much about making a big statement as it is about finding the best coach. You want to tell the rest of the competition that this year we are resetting we mean business. We're going to bring in some big names and be good. I mean, let's say, for example, they'd got Stephen Fleming and got in before Southern Brave. Suddenly, the headline, Stephen Fleming to Welsh Fire, that, that sets tongues wagging. That's a big move. The, the thing is, you've got to try. Like, tell you what, if Ricky Ponting ignores my calls for the next couple of months, he sees Cardiff ping up on his phone with a UK number giving him a call and he puts it down knowing it's us on the end of the line telling us to come to Welsh Fire. Fair play. Got to try. In, in, let's just assume Ricky Ponting's not coming. Let's look at some realistic options that we, we feel could offer something. I have a name in mind that I don't think I've, I haven't told you yet. So I'm going to save that. Who's on your list of, of, of the kind of coaches you'd want to talk to? Well, I would have said Paul Farbrace initially, but he signed on at Sussex, so he's out of the running now. Because initially I thought that his name was kind of on the shortlist for the Welsh Fire job. I don't know if discussions happened or not, but obviously he went down the Sussex route and fair play to him. I'm sure he did a good job there. Paul Nixon is a coach I admire very highly. Yeah. He's had a really good job at Leicestershire in very difficult situations. Obviously, they're not particularly financially strong. 
they've been more or less one of the whipping boys the last 10, 15 years of county cricket. And he's got results out of them. He's made them, particularly in T20 cricket, a very decent side with very little to work with. That's admirable. And that is, I think, exactly the kind of quality that would make him a very good candidate to lead Welsh Fire, who are another team who have struggled very, very much and compared to other teams are not going to have a great deal to work with. That, to me, feels like a perfect fit. You know the kind of talking point that comes up all the time with the Premier League where, well, if Sean Dyche was Italian, he'd have the Man U job. I, I, <laughs> I, I genuinely think that kind of stuff is nonsense if you if you don't include Eddie Howe, who I always thought was properly up for a good job and has done a very good job in Newcastle. Uh, point is, with, with Dyche and all that, I'm not a believer. I, I kind of feel that way about Paul Nixon. Like I, I, the, the job he has done with Leicestershire and the job he's done at his other stops as well, um, spends a decent amount of time in Bangladesh and stuff, has, has had really good results, um, especially in white ball cricket. I mean, Leicestershire aren't a good red ball team. But in white ball cricket, you know, it, it's a team that plays to a strategy. They know their roles. They play really hard. They're difficult to face. Um, disciplinary points sometimes follow that. But the point is, is they at least put up a fight. And I, and I really do think Paul Nixon deserves a go at a franchise or something like that. I, I, I really am impressed with him. And, and you might think, oh, former wicketkeeper, a bit, you know, you know, a bit of a loud mouth. He's a deep thinker of the game. You can see him. He's always taking notes. I've no idea what notes he's taking. It might just be me, like when I was in history lectures at university, doing you know, just with a notepad out, looking like I'm writing, but writing nothing. But I, I do think there is something about it, um, and and I think when you've whatever the Welsh fire issue is, and we don't really know, but just having someone as a culture setter, someone who's had success, someone who who's good with people. I like the idea of Nixon. Um, he'd be in the frame. My front runner is Mike Hessen. I think if you're looking at someone with a decent track record, I mean, obviously he did fantastically with that New Zealand side for, for years, did a very strong job there uh, with RCB at the moment. I think he has been a stabilizing and decent force within RCB who for years were a little bit of a mess with their team building and now seem like they've got, things together a little bit more. I, I just think having an adult in the room, having someone who has done it, who has T20 pedigree. I, I also think you you look at the way, and look at the job he did with New Zealand. And I think this is a theme throughout New Zealand over the last few, few years. It, you look at the New Zealand side, they do not match up with the quality of any of the other top sides. No, they don't. What they do is play to a strategy, play within themselves, and play winning cricket with the talent they have. And with the Welsh Fire, you're probably not going to be able to have the same talent as other teams given the situation you're in. But with Mike Hessen, at least, he will look at that personnel, and I think he's got a track record of working out, okay, well, how do we win? And that, for me, is very valuable. And he's not the explosive name. But I mean, he's a he's a, he's a I think he's a titan of, of cricket coaching in the modern era. Um, so I would be very interested in bringing him aboard. I think he'd probably be my top candidate if Ponting's ignoring my calls. Hassan's a really good shot. He's a really good coach, and I think he has a track record of getting a lot out of what he has on the table. And much like Nixon at Leicestershire, that isn't always a great deal. Mm. As in, what he has to work with isn't particularly exciting sometimes, but. If you're able to squeeze every drop of talent and ability 
and performance out of what you have, put it together in a sensible way with a good strategy, then you're going to get quite far. I think having a coach that's able to free people up, to feel relaxed, to feel confident in their natural game goes a long way. And that's something that I would do across his career. So that's a really good shout. I rate that. I will fully back Hess. The other name that pops up, and, and to be clear, he's not a head coach in the IPL, but he's done a good job over that, is Vikram Solanke. Obviously kind of left Surrey to go to the IPL. He's now with the Gujarat Titans. Is that I think I think I can't remember his exact title, but I think he's like head of cricket or head of performance or, or something like that. Here we are, director of cricket at Gujarat Titans. Um is Vikram Solanke currently. He was uh, you know, with sorry for so long. Look at the job he did with Gujarat Titans. I, I, I'd be interested in bringing him in. Uh, I'm not sure he'd bring Ashish Nehra with him, their head coach, but that's just an, a name that I'd be interested in, who's gone over to the IPL, has seen how that works, has got a lot out of a Gujarat Titans side, let's be honest, at winning the tournament with a dodgy 11. I mean, that was stuck together with toothpicks and gum. They depended a, a, an obscene amount on Rahul Tawatia, which is never a situation you want to end up <laughs> end up in. Uh, and I do think there's a little bit of a mirage about how good the Titans were. But the point is, he took a you know a new franchise with no assets, and they ended up they, they had Shuman Gill, Rashid Khan, Hardik Pandya, great starting point. But he was part of getting those players in. He convinced Rashid Khan to come over to Gujarat Titans. Clearly, so. He built that franchise and he built a winning culture and a winning team in a year. And I, that's the kind of person you'd be interested in maybe bringing over to the Welsh Fire. So I like that as well. 100%. Again, a really good chat. Vikram Solanke has done a really good job. I think we've kind of had him on our radar for a little while. I think I remember we spoke about him earlier in the summer, perhaps before he went to Gujarat, maybe? No, mm. it must have been after. I can't remember. But we've definitely spoken about how much we reeked Solanke before. He would definitely be on my shortlist as well. He's a really good coach, really good reputation in not very much time, to be honest, but his reputation is growing. And again, I feel like he would be an interesting candidate for this. Yeah, and I think it's a similar thing to what Mike Hessen is at RCB, Director of Cricket. I'm not fully sure how the role works, but but I would be interested in bringing him into my organisation. And I think that's something you have to consider. So there are options that I, I really, I really like the idea of Hessen. We got a mailbag question on this, by the way, from 12K Talky Palm. The question is, what's on for the fire? Good question. Uh, obviously, we don't know who the coach is yet. So once we know that, I guess there's a bit more clarity. But we're not going to answer that now because we, we'd be here for hours. So we're going to uh, do a full podcast on the Welsh fire at some point soon with the way we'd you know, look at this off-season, attack this off-season. So we'll hold out um, for that. Let's move on then before we look at the women's draft for some initial retention thoughts. Uh, we don't fully know how that's going to shape up for this year, but we've been going through we're going through the squads and who we keep and the kind of challenges that pop up. And, and, and interesting, I think we've kind of realised is there might be a few more players going into the draft mechanism this year, purely on the fact that, um, that there are teams that just can't pay all of their good players. I mean, you look at Oval Invincibles, for example, they've got Jason Roy, Sam Billings, Will Jacks, Reese Topley, Sakib Mahmood, all in there. And then also Tom Curran. And you probably want to fit all of those guys into your top six rounds. I don't think any of them are going to 
except 60k. Jordan Cox had a good season as well. He might want to bump up. It just feels that there are some of these teams who have really quality players who now might have to see some of them go just because they can't afford to keep them at the right price bracket. And that's why the draft mechanism works so well, because ultimately it does give you a bit of a chance, if you haven't drafted so well in early seasons, to get a little bit of catch-up and sign some good players from other teams. It does level out the playing field quite nicely. It's funny because in a way, it kind of feels like you're punishing teams for recruiting well in the first place, but they all know the rules. That's how it works. And I think it makes it more exciting. Birmingham Phoenix have a team as well in the, in the men's setup who have a lot of very good domestic players, but there's only so many slots available in the higher price brackets. And a lot of them are going to want those higher price brackets. You look at, say, Moeen Ali, Liam Livingstone, who we expect when we were up to the centrally contracted bracket, so he will probably be one less player to worry about there. But obviously you have Moeen Ali, you've got Will Smead, who's going to want a lot more money, you'd think, than what he was on last year. You've got Ollie Stone, who's done 100k last year. You've got Tom Abel, who was around 60k last year, probably worth a bit more than that if he goes into the open draft. And suddenly you start thinking, it's tricky to keep all of these players happy. So you end up potentially losing a few, which means that other teams can swoop in again. And that's when you start to see teams rebuilding, having the chance to rebuild. It's a really exciting time, I think. This is the kind of stuff that I think you and I really love the most, because it's when you start to see teams fail or fly. This is this mm. is the most important part in a, in a big way for me. This is when teams are, are broken or made. Yeah, and, and here's the, the thing that I think also plays into this. I'm going to read to you a list of domestic players that were taken in the first four rounds. So that's 125k and 100k a year. Um, domestic players. Joe Clark, Tom Cola Cadmore, Laurie Evans, Liam Dawson, Ollie Stone. Those are not, I mean, maybe Joe Clark aside, premier T20 players. I would say. And then you also look in round five, other players who've got 75K, Dan Worrell, Jordan Thompson, Ian Cobain. I feel like there are going to be certain players who are on 75K currently. Um, there are going to be players, like, I know, like Will Jacks, who might think, oh, I could get 125K, Tom Curran, Reese Topley, Will Smead, all of these different players who suddenly look at this and think, well, yeah, I like the franchise I'm at. But there, there are players who maybe aren't at that level that are getting paid a lot more. So I wonder if suddenly you see a flooding of the market. I mean, Dan Lawrence at 60K, surely he could earn a little bit more. There, there are lots of nice players across this draft mechanism who are probably worth more than they're getting paid. And you wonder if now they've seen those sort of players get the big payday, they think, well, if you're not going to give me the money I want, I'll walk. I'll go get a pay boost. I know I will. Now, I wonder if that just floods the market a bit as well and makes it more difficult for these teams. I think it might do. I really think that this season we're going to see more movement than last season. I just think that might happen. There's also the possibility as well that teams can retain less than 10 players. Obviously, last season it was 10 players, but that was the first season. So there was a little bit of lenience coming into the second season from there. This time round, we might see less. If the organisers may want to see a bit more movement, which we're predicting anyway, but if they want more movement, it could drop down to nine or eight players potentially. Um, so that's only going to encourage that kind of player transfers more. And I think that's an exciting thing, personally. I think with you know eight or nine players, you still have more than enough players there to maintain the core of the team and the identity. But you also have just enough movement to keep it exciting and get some, get some marquee domestic players moving around. That's going to be fun. That's going to be exciting. And I think we might get it. 
I hope we get it. I, I hope players understand their value here. Because, I mean, there's an opportunity for some of them to take a potential, like, you know, potential rise of, what, 25K, 50K for some of them? I mean, you look at some of the players who are in the 75K bracket, I mean, potentially, Will Smead, he could get a big boost there. And there are all sorts of players here who think, well, you know what, I like the franchise map. I could earn 50K more, 25K more, whatever, somewhere else. And I think that'll be a big draw. And I think players were quite conservative last time round um, in terms of just staying at those franchises. I think players should and probably will be a bit more bold this time round. So I'm very interested to see if that is ultimately the case. And also if teams, you know, maybe press the buttons of some players and say, hey, you know, we could give you a 25k pay rise if you wanted to come to us, which some teams might have to do, by the way. I just think that will make this more interesting. And we might see, I don't know, we might see a bit more of a, a bit more of a kind of varied and interesting domestic field in general. So I think that could make this cycle quite exciting as well. I also think that adds a new challenge to teams like the Brave, the Phoenix, the Invincibles. You you built that great core. Now you've got to rebuild, you've got to retool, you've got to work out what the side is. You've got to keep identifying talent. And it's a constant, constant battle. I'll keep identifying and bringing in that talent. I think you know, the Southern Brave had a bad year last year, but they brought in Rehan Ahmed. So that, that you know that, that that's a good sign. You've got to keep bringing in that talent. I think that's going to make things very interesting. And what we'll look at retentions uh, close to the the window. Um, we'll kind of look at what each team should do. But for now, I do think there are a lot of interesting options out there. Also, I think an interesting thing we've heard, this broke a, a couple of months ago now, uh, is new changes to the women's draft. So there's now going to be a women's draft mechanism. Um, it's going to be a bit different to the men's one. But there is now a women's draft mechanism. Uh, I think there's a bit of excitement around that. I think also a bit of trepidation, which I think is fair enough, given you know there's it's quite a new professional game. A lot of these players aren't on a lot of money. Creating that uncertainty is uh, not ideal, I suppose. But I, I do think it adds a little bit more drama and a little bit more intrigue around the off season, which was previously a bit of a mystery. Yeah, I think there's two schools of thought here, and I don't like to be a fence sitter, but I can see both sides of the fence very clearly and appreciate them. On the one side, drafts are fundamentally quite cool and exciting. As I said before, they're a very good leveler of teams, and over the last couple of seasons, I think it's been clear, particularly in the women's tournament, that some teams are really good and some teams have been quite poor, and that's been consistent over the last two seasons. Having a draft, at the very least, gives teams an opportunity to rebalance that. And that can only be a good thing in terms of leveling the playing field and having a more competitive tournament overall. That's surely a good thing. And I also think it's a good thing because you, as you kind of alluded to there, Ed, you demystify that slightly secretive process on the open market, which you had previously, because we didn't actually know how players have picked beyond coaches folding up players and saying, do you want to play for me? And they say yes or no. Um, as we've typically found, what happens is Charlotte, Charlotte Edwards comes in and says, come and play for me. And everyone says, yes, because obviously. Um, and someone, you know, that's that's obviously how it's going to work. Um, on the other hand, as you kind of said, there's the trepidation, there's the, the uncertainty. That's very valid. There's also the risk as well that you've spent two years building up these team identities, which people identify with. 
and then you kind of rip it all up with the exception of four mm. players and leave the rest up to you know up the chance essentially that could potentially change and I understand why that is something that might not be going over so well with some people I get that completely um, and I also think if I'm being brutally honest that it's it's kind of a halfway house system it's like a half draft and a half open market system and I feel like it might be better just sticking to one or the other because it's a slightly complex setup in fact before we recorded this podcast we were having a little bit of a a discussion about it ourselves trying to understand the mechanics and i'm saying this as as someone well it's the both of us who spend way too much of our free time obsessing over cricket drafts generally um to us it even seemed a bit confusing so i get why they've kind of gone down the middle here i get why they wanted to introduce something more competitive with the draft to rebalance the teams uh but also they've kept a bit of open market to try and ensure something closer resembling that kind of security, I guess, although that doesn't really work because players are going to get released anyway, bar four maximum from each side. So that's kind of gone as well. So I like the idea in theory. I'm not 100% convinced on the execution yet, but we'll see. I'm not convinced at all about the execution, and I'm going to try and explain it. As the one of us, as the one of us who has absolutely no idea how this works, still, I'm going to try and explain it, and hopefully this makes sense. So, the draft mechanism includes eight draft picks, right, at, at certain different levels in four bands. Um, so you have eight players that would end up in the draft mechanism. The other seven are picked up on the open market. A little bit weird, but those eight picks with those four brackets. Uh, can include up to four retentions, two of which are allowed to be overseas players or wait. Oh my God, right. No, here we are. So <laughs> three pl- three players can be either overseas or centrally contracted players. So you could have one overseas and two centrally contact players or one centrally contact player and two overseas, and then you get another domestic player. So you get four players and you can slot them wherever in the grid you want, theoretically, uh, whatever price they agree to. And and then the draft happens and you pick other players. This is, this is really confusing. But the point is you get to you, three of your big names and one of your domestic, not centrally contact stars, basically is how it worked. Uh, let's just say your Northern Superchargers. Um, you would probably end up keeping... I'm just kind of working this through in my head. You probably want to end up keeping, would you keep Wolvart, Rodrigues, let's just say as the two overseas. And then you want to pick, maybe you want to keep Lindsay Smith, maybe, or Alice, probably Alice Davidson Richards. So let's say you've got Rodrigues, Wolvart, Davidson Richards, and then you could go get one of your other domestic players. It could be a Bess Heath. It could be a Kalia Moore. It could be Casey Levick, whoever you end up wanting. Theoretically, that's how it could work. Pop them in the mechanism. You go get the other players through the draft. All make sense? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes. It does. That, that 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 is how I interpreted it when I read it. Um, the ECB love to make things crystal clear. So my question is, and you know how much I love bargain bucket overseas. Could you just draft? Could you just right? So let's say you kept two, you kept three England players or three English players and one overseas. Could you just then draft domestic players and just get your overseas afterwards in the open market? 
I, in theory, if they're willing to be um, selected at a lower price bracket than they yeah, would have got in the early rounds, that's the only thing. Because obviously the uh, the retentions and draft mechanism are the first four price brackets, so yes. that's where the big money is. So it's unlikely you're going to get one of the big marquee overseas names to agree to be picked on the open market because of the price. But if you do want to go down the more moneyball route, get a slightly less well-known player who you know fits I the do. bill for you. You know then, then that that would logically be a good a, a play. Um, so I think it will depend on if you want that big marquee name or if you want someone a little more on the radar. But you have the option there. I just put it this way: right? there are eight teams. Uh, Australia has at least twenty good T Twenty players who'd be impact players yes. in hundred. I tell you what: if if Darcy Brown doesn't get picked up and I can offer her slightly less, and she decides to to come over and bowl in the power play for the Welsh Fire, let's do it. Um, it's confusing, um, is the point. <laughs> um, and I think we'll know more close to the time. We did get a mailbag question about this uh, from Thomas Laver, who asks, will any other women's side choose to retain less than a full complement of four players? My guess is that they'll all retain as many as possible, but Welsh Fire or Northern Superchargers could be a bit more marginal, in my opinion. I think they'll retain, retain, retain. I think every side will retain four. I think every side, even the Welsh Fire, has enough there. What do you think? I agree. I mean, if you look at the way the men's 100 retentions have played out, obviously last season each team could retain 10 players and a lot of them came quite close to a full a full roster, if not a full roster every time. So using that as the kind of benchmark here, when you've only got four players to work with, which is considerably less, I feel like you only see the majority of them being full. I think each team, as you say, definitely has, at the very least, four players worth retaining on those higher price brackets. So, yeah, I'd be surprised if there are many teams who don't come back four players already locked in. I think the Northern Superchargers take four because you've got Wolvar um, and you've got Rodriguez and you've also got um, Alyssa Healy as well. You, you want to keep two of those, right? And then I've listed the domestic players. If I was Northern Superchargers, I'd be keen to keep Clearmore, ADR, Bess Heath, Lindsay Smith, Casey Levick, also Holly Armitage, the captain. All players that I would have some level of interest in bringing back in some slot. Welsh Fire, I think assuming you keep Hayley Matthews, class player, I think it's worth of course. it. You probably want to keep Beaumont, Fran Wilson, and Alex Hartley. So, so that's four. You could maybe you know let one of those leave. Welsh Fire might be a team that keeps three, but I think, to be honest with you, given the uncertainty of this as well, I would I would go down the route of retaining four, especially given you don't know how the draft's going to go and you don't know if players are going to want to come play for your club. Those seven seven players could go radically differently for some teams. Um, Southern Brave might do very well. Other teams might not. So I would be keen to keep all four and have that certainty and then build around that. And I think that'll be the strategy we see teams use. But I'm interested. Um, and as I say, all of those, those players the Northern Superchargers have, you know, a bit of injection of injection of new new faces into new camps. Bess Heath maybe goes to another team. I mean, she's a great talent. So... I think I think it's it's intriguing how it will go, and we'll have more on that as we go into it. Looking at what team each team might do and what the strategy will be. Don't fully know how they're going to broadcast these drafts yet. If they're going to, how it's going to work, which always complicates our jobs a little bit. Um, but we'll keep a full eye full eye on things. Any final thoughts on that before we get to the mailbag, Charlie? Um, not really. I guess I would just finish up by saying I think it's a cool and exciting step. 
into the future. It's something that we have spoken about before. We are excited, but there is a degree of trepidation. There is a degree of uncertainty. And I think that's entirely valid. I've kind of felt the same myself. So I'm in two minds, but I'm, I'm curious and excited generally. I hope they consulted the players um, and the PCA and all of that before they did this, is all I would say. Um, and I hope they really went through that process. Uh, let's go on to the mailbag questions then before we finish up. I've uh, got a few in. Uh, let's start with the footpack lads. A couple of questions here. Um, first question, Charlie's going to throw this to you because it's uh, you're, you're the expert in all of the, all the details here. Um, they ask, will the Superchargers be able to retain Potts, Brook and Stokes because of central contracts? Not fully sure about this yet, but I think we have some sort of answer. Yeah, I think generally the answer is yes here. So of the three, Ben Stokes is the only one who has a full central contract. Now, for the purposes of the 100 draft mechanism in the previous couple of years, the centrally contracted players are considered to be test players by the ECB. So those are players that play test cricket for England, basically, and have a full central contract. Um, now, there has been a little bit of lenience on that in the past, but that's typically been what they go on when they decide whether you go into that central contract bracket or if you go into the draft mechanism. So Ben Stokes, we expect, will stay right where he is in his central contract bracket. Uh, the other two players, Brooke and Potts, do not have the full central contracts, although both have played Test Cricket for England this year. Despite that, they don't have the full central contract. So as far as I'm aware, they will be in the draft mechanism and therefore they can be retained as part of that, as you would do with any other player. So basically, if the Superchargers want to keep Brook, Stokes and Potts, they can do so if they want to, no question. It it could be a little bit difficult for the Superchargers if Stokes and Brook don't play much. Um, I mean, we, we've seen Harry Brooks an IPL millionaire. I mean, he's 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 going to be absolute stud, but he's going to be playing a lot of Test cricket because he's really good at that as well. I think that could impact them. And if he's not around much, I wonder if they let Matty Potts go. Uh, we'll, we'll see. But there's a there's a question to be had there. Um, but yes, theoretically they can. Um, and and the other question for the Footpack lads as well is which overseas players will the Superchargers retain? This, this I think, is interesting because, well, one of those overseas players is technically retired from the IPL now, DJ Bravo. So I'm not sure how keen they'll be to bring him back. I don't know what the situation with Wahab Riaz is either. So what are your thoughts on those overseas? Well, in terms of the men's superchargers team, I think there was a reason we called him Northern Super Creaky. It was mainly because <laughs> of the contingent of very experienced T20 cricketers, Fafta Plessy, David Visa, Dwayne Bravo, Waham Riaz, and Wayne Parnell, who came yes, in as a, as a replacement. Yeah. Now, all have been very, very good players at various points in their career. I don't know if there's too many of them I would be hugely keen on bringing back this year. The one that I definitely think I would would be David Visa. I can't believe I'm saying that because years ago, my appreciation for David Visa was rock bottom. Um, but in the last couple of years, he's been playing very well. I have to say, he has really found his feet in the last couple of years. He's been performing very nicely. He's a very solid, flexible all-rounder in the short form of the game. He's going to be fully available for the whole season, which is very important, I think, in a competition that lasts four weeks. Mm. He's flexible. He can kind of bat in the middle or lower. He's decent bowler these days. He's got he's 
he's got some decent change-ups on him, which again, he didn't necessarily used to have, but he does look quite nicely. I would keep him if you can get him for a cheap price. I imagine they will keep Fafta Plessy because obviously he was captain last season. He's very experienced. He's a big name, marquee player. Wouldn't surprise me if they kept him. Would I personally keep him? I probably I'd wouldn't. Keep, I, I'd keep him. I'd keep him. And I, I know where you're coming from. I know where you're coming from. But the man's on a heater. I know it's the Big Bash League. I know it is. But he's 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 looked really, really good. He's looked Ross really... Wiley's looked really good. Bowling. <laughs> Ross Wiley's not looked good with the bats, but <laughs> with the ball. But but he's looked really good. I think he's aging nicely. RCB are going to have him at the top of the order. I, I would I would ride the Faf two plus C train another season, and I get it. But with no Stokes there, I, I would keep him. I just I think he's still got it, and and I think he's 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 improved a little bit over the last eighteen months or so. So I would keep Faf. And, and I, I've never been the biggest Faf guy in T20 cricket until very recently. I think, but I think he's been pretty good. So I would still keep him. Um, I, I would agree in letting Bravo and Riaz go. Parnell might be brought in, and I don't know if anyone actually follows the hundred sides on Instagram. Wayne Parnell was featured a great deal on the Northern Superchargers Instagram account. Either nobody else wanted to do anything to do with the social media teams, or they really loved his electric personality. When he wasn't playing, he was just popping around different coffee shops in Leeds, having a great time. I I know what this is. This is because he came over earlier than his stint with the squad was going to begin. He was replacing Dwayne Bravo, who was going to head off to the CPL, which started, I believe, one week or two weeks before the end of the 100. But Parnell was basically there for the entire duration of the competition. But because Bravo was there, he couldn't actually join the squad. So he's just at loose ends for about two or three weeks. So they just sent him sent him around Leeds. Just, Wayne, mate, do you fancy doing some stuff to social media? He's like, yeah, sure. That's genuinely what it was. I'm not even joking. He just had time to kill. I really appreciate that their first the first thought was let's let's not bring this man in as a bowling consultant and keep him around the group. Let's send him to coffee shops at least. <laughs> oh dear. Well, Wayne Wayne deserves that. I, lo- I love Wayne. Yeah. <laughs> oh dear. Good on him. He's a good sport. Great cricketer. Hope he gets a gig somewhere else the next year. I love Wayne Pond. I always have. Pune Warriors India legend. Um. Good. I think Visa and Duplessis then is the answer. But hey, never all super creaky out of anything. They've got they've got an old man up their sleeves. They're eyeing up Pravin Tambe in the next draft. They know what they're going after. Um, William Tench has got a couple of questions as well. First of all, uh, what should teams look for from their overseas contingents? Charlie, you're in charge of a hundred team. You're looking at the overseas options in this draft. What are the key things you're looking at? Well, first of all, I want to make sure that they're available for the majority, if not the entire competition. No Mm. question about it. That's very important to me. I do not want to sign a really good player if he's only going to play for the first couple of games and then he can disappear. That, to me, is not worth paying the big bucks for. I would much rather pay the big bucks for a player who maybe isn't quite as big a name, maybe isn't quite as elite, but you know he's going to perform in a specific role for you and he's going to be there for the whole competition. That, to me, is really, really important. So that's the first thing I'm looking for, checking that future tours programme, making sure that the player I want is going to actually be able to play for me. 
Yeah, I, I think that's key. It, obviously, in the men's tournament, that's a bigger issue. In the women's tournament, you know, most players are there, and you've got different criteria. I I agree with the men's tournament. It's just having those players there is really really important. Um, and, and look, I I know there's the desire to bring the best possible players in, but you still need them to play for you. They they need to be there at the crunch moments. I think that's an issue. Is that seemingly a lot of players seem to leave as the tournaments getting to the finals and you suddenly end up with a really dodgy overseas contingent in the, in the finals. I mean, sort of David Beddingham, I think ended up playing it in the finals because the players, teams are running out of overseas players. I I think that's important. And and that kind of takes the West Indian players out of it, of course, because of the CPL and Australia and South Africa have a white ball series that might impact as well. So I agree with that. I think the, the other thing, at least in, in my mind is just knowing they offer a skill set that you can't find elsewhere, or at least a superior skill set in a valuable role. I'm I'm thinking, you know, your your dominating opener, the guy who can who's not the anchor, but but can be the consistent run scorer, can go out there and change a game and just with international quality, um, a big hitter, a guy who can hit sixes and dominate, like Tim David. Don't get a lot of those around the world. One of them. You know, a, a really great spinner, mystery spinner, leg spinner, um, Feek Sharna might be available this time. Interested in that. Or a great quick bowler. Go and get the guys who are really valuable and real studs and really offer something you can't get elsewhere. That's what I really, I really think you should do in any franchise cricket, to be honest. Yeah, 100%. This is the reason why you don't see a great deal of overseas spinners in the IPL because the franchises recognise that the quality of domestic spin options they have available to them is pretty good. So there's no point wasting an overseas slot and big money on an overseas spinner because they've got the stocks there. That pick wouldn't bring them anything that they didn't really have already available to them. And that is sensible. That's logical. And you have to think the same way here. What kind of players do we have in the English domestic system and what don't we have? And it's the what don't we have the team should be looking at to try and sign. And it's interesting as well in the IPL, actually, that they're, they're kind of moving away from that a little bit just because there's not many leg spinners out there. And now they have 10 teams. There's a bit of a, a bit of a dearth of Indian leg spinners. So there's a little bit of like lack of, in, there's a little bit of a lack of Indian leg spinners. So Adil Rashid at SRH now. Akil Hussain's got a gig at SRH, which I find a little bit weird. Um, as much as I know he hits and he's a good operator and I really like him as a package, not sure you need a left arm spinner as part of your overseas contingent. Zampa to Rajasthan rules as well. So, so yeah, I think that that is really key and it's something you should always be looking out for. A bit of a difficult one, marrying that availability and that real star power. But I do think there are going to be some some players that we'll look at and think yeah, they're real targets in 2023. And final question from William Tench as well. How will the lack of conflicting England international fixtures impact the tournament in 2023? Um, for the men's game, will it change how teams view recruitment and which teams will benefit the most? I'll I, I put this to you. I, I think there are certain teams who could really do with their big big name in England players being there. Absolutely. I mean, you look at teams like, for example, Northern Superchargers. If you get Ben Stokes and Harry Brook playing every game for yeah. you, you're in business. Likewise, London Spirit. You got Mark Wood in that squad. Now he's never played a single game in the hundred, but you get him playing, and all of a sudden that attack looks pretty darn fun. Mm. It gives you so much more, so much more than you could get in the draft. 
However, I still think that there is a decent chance that these players don't play. And I know that we have a fully available window in theory where there's no England cricket coinciding with 100. So in theory, we have these guys available. However, in practice, we have a situation where we're going into a World Cup after the 100 in the autumn. Mm. There's a lot of cricket being played and a lot of test players are now multi-format players who are playing a lot of cricket because of the way Brendan McCollum has revamped his test team. You think a lot of the guys coming to the test team now who play white ball cricket for England too. So there's a lot of international cricket for these guys on the table in this year. So it would not be a huge surprise if you get some of those multi-format guys pulling out of games, missing chunks, if not the whole section of the tournament to keep himself fresh for the World Cup uh, and some blowout cricket that happens down the line. So if I'm in charge of a 100 team, I'm probably planning my recruitment strategy on the basis that these guys aren't going to be around much, if at all. And if I've got them, they're bonuses. But if not, I've planned for that. They're all in the IPL as well now. I mean, England have got so a lot of a lot of contributions in the IPL, and I, th- I think specifically if you're Joe Root, you're Ben Stokes, you spend months in the IPL, you spend months touring. It's just a, a just a couple of weeks off could be massive, and I hope they play. It'd be great if they play, but I also understand. I think there's a, there's a point here where England need to England need to understand that if Ben Stokes and Joe Root and all of these players are going to play in this competition. Their workload has got to be such where, okay, I'll go play for a couple of weeks. I'll play some some you know high standard 100-ball cricket. It'll be great. That means stopping pointless ODI series where you're shipping out all of these players randomly in March. That means playing a little bit less cricket. And I think you have to understand that that's key if you want these players to actually play. Not just about creating a window. You know they're going to be playing in the IPL because they're earning a ton of money. Harry Brook earning a lot of money to play in the IPL. He's going to play in the IPL, fair play to him. So you've got to understand that's part of it. You've got to understand that he's going to want to play every test match. You've got to understand that he's going to want to play those those, those formats and those series. He's a competitor. So I think you have to first understand that you need to play less stupid random 50 over in T20 series for no reason. Uh, start resting some players as well in stupid T20 50 over cricket as well. Um, and And then just, you know, try and make somewhere a little bit less congested for them as well is all i would say so so yeah i i wouldn't come into this tournament thinking i'm going to have these guys but god i mean the northern supercharge having ben stokes and harry brook suddenly that that's pretty exciting and it would be nice to see them there even if just for the finals even if they just show up for finals day i think that'd be pretty cool Um, but i wouldn't wouldn't count on it heading into the tournament to be honest I'm not really sure until we know that you can really point at any team's benefiting massively. However, Johnny Bairstow, finally back in Welsh Fire Colours. That's what we all need to see. A little stat for you. Uh, Johnny Bairstow's played two games for the Welsh Fire. Uh, He averages 64 at a strike at 170. He's hit 18 boundaries in two innings. Makes a difference. When you have the stars, it matters. It really matters, especially in a tournament like the 100. You get Johnny Bairstow parachuted in there. That that is that that changes the Welsh fire fundamentally. So we'll see. Anyway, that's all we have um, for this episode. We'll be back relatively soon to talk about retentions. We'll do our big "What on Earth of the Welsh Fire" episode as well at some point soon. Please follow us on Twitter at Podcast Hundred. 
Um, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, we'll do a couple more mailbags down the line. So drop over your questions and uh, just send anything you what you want us to answer our way. Love to love to answer them. Um, but for now, thank you very very much for listening. Uh, we'll speak to you next time.